0: Hello, and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball, and today's guest is astronomer in charge of the Anglo-Australian Observatory in Cunabarabran, regular broadcast on the ABC radio, and author of a number of books, the latest of which is Star Craving Mad. Fred Watson, welcome.
1: Thank you very much, Maggie.
0: Now, before we begin our conversation, can I ask you, please, just for our listeners' sake, to read us a little bit from Star Craving Mad?
1: (laughs) I'd love to. Um, It's uh, uh, quite an unusual experience reading out loud from your own book, (laughs) but uh, I do remember some of the words since I tried to write them down in the right order, and uh, here we go. This is Chapter 1, which starts, Have you ever met anyone from Pluto? I have, or at least that's where he said he was from when I met him. He was very striking. Tall dreadlocks, a vivid vivid pink silk suit. I might start that sentence again. He was very striking. Tall dreadlocks, a vivid pink silk suit, and carrying something that looked at first sight like a didgeridoo. Since this was Berlin, that seemed unlikely, and indeed it did turn out to be nothing more than a big stick was the kind of thing that you might take along to a fancy dress party if you went along as a prophet. So I guess it, could, it should have come as no surprise that this gentleman eventually revealed that he was, well, a prophet. He'd been sitting with a couple of friends, uh, disciples perhaps, in the back row of a small lecture theatre in the Urania Science Centre, where I'd been giving a talk about Pluto to an audience of science-minded Aussie travellers and curious Berliners. Uh, The Aussie travellers had just joined me for a study tour of Europe, while the Berliners might only have been there for a bit of English language practice, who knows? Um, But I I always find it pays to keep an eye on the back row since this is traditionally where the naughty seats are and old habits die hard even among otherwise responsible adults. But the pink gentleman had looked harmless enough, it's a little eccentric, so when he rose with messianic import in response to my invitation for questions, I was a bit taken aback. Yes, Professor Watson, he began in an alarmingly authoritative tone. That took me aback too, since most members of the public who come to my talks have no idea what my name is. And if they do, they just call me Fred, which I much prefer. Professor Watson, I have the first question. Okay, Here it comes, I thought, he's going to take issue with me over Pluto's relegation to a dwarf planet. That wasn't something I was in any way responsible for, but I'd made much of it in my discourse, and I'd tried to explain the scientific rationale behind it. But no, it wasn't that. I would like to know in which direction Pluto is standing at the present time. Well, I guess it's a fair question, given that the subject of the lecture was Pluto, but it's not the sort of thing most astronomers carry around in their heads. And the pink gentleman elaborated a bit by explaining that he wanted its position in degrees. And I suppose I could have told him that Pluto was twenty one years past its perihelion point and invited him to calculate its celestial longitude in degrees in his head. However He couldn't have done it myself. He could have given me any number he liked, but I did tell him how to find the answer by consulting the truly wonderful Heavens Above website, which gives up-to-the-minute positions for all the main bodies of the solar system. That seemed to be acceptable. Okay, next question, he went on. Can you tell me if there's any scientist on the face of this Earth who can give me the exact distance from the Earth to Pluto? When I replied that we probably know Pluto's distance with an accuracy of a few kilometers, which is not bad for something that's nearly five billion kilometers away, he looked singularly unimpressed. So did his disciples, who had clearly been expecting something more entertaining than a discussion about mere solar system distances. It seemed time for him to throw down the gauntlet. That's really just speculation, though, isn't it, he said. Well, I would have thought that a few kilometers in five billion kilometers was pretty good speculation, so I began to explain how we know the distance. But that wasn't in the pink gentleman's script. I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Messenger 9 from the School of Prophets, sent to you by my master, Pluto. Ah, this was better. The disciples looked relieved. So did everybody else in the room, but probably for a different reason. At least they now knew what they were up against. At the school of prophets, we don't deal in speculation, only certainties. The disciples beamed, and I have a prophecy to make. His tone became more messianic by the minute as he brought us his forecast of doom. I was sent here to prophesy to this scientific community about an event that will unfold in seven days. It will be an earthquake of magnitude seven or eight, and it will be caused by the planet Pluto. By now, Messenger 9 was in full flow, and the disciples were beside themselves with admiration. I ventured to interrupt, so can you tell me where this earthquake will occur? Well, let me tell you, he began again, drawing breath for another assault on his disbelieving audience. But the polite German chair of the session had sensed that Messenger 9 was about to embark on an answer that would ramble far and wide and and interrupted him. Excuse me, it's his talk, not yours. Laughter and cheers from the audience. Oh, well, let me tell you, it will occur 243 degrees west of the equator. I don't think Messenger 9 had bargained for the tirade of protest he received from the audience who are all awake enough to, to, to realize that 243 degrees west of the equator is meaningless as a position on the earth's surface. It's like saying 10 kilometers along the Sydney road. 10 kilometers from where? He stuck to his gun, though, no doubt for the benefit of the disciples and seemed convinced that such an earthquake would occur. Eventually, amid growing protests from the audience, Messenger 9 was persuaded to sit down so that others could ask questions which, in comparison with his, were perfectly normal. (laughs)
0: <laughs> you 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 have to do that more often.
1: <laughs> I should do it more often, and then I might not stumble over the words all the time. I should um I should explain um, that as an astronomer, of
0: course, periodically
1: I uh, observe on the telescope, and so I go on to a night schedule and become a nocturnal person. We'll turn into sort of Latter-day ballons. we get pale and have big eyes, uh, and that's just happened to me, so I've just finished an observing run, and that is why uh, that might not have been quite as smooth as it otherwise would have been. Um, it was smooth as pink
0: silk, <laughs> or plilk. Um so it, that does raise an i mean I love that story, and um it does raise an interesting question and, and I suppose it, it comes hand in hand with being what you are, which is one of a new breed, a celebrity astronomer um, you You do talk a little bit about this in your book, but um have you noticed firstly that the public's hunger for lay astronomy is growing
1: uh, look I believe it is um. In Australia, I think there's always been a pretty high level of interest in uh, in astronomy. And perhaps it goes back to our colonial roots when you know, Australia was, uh, was, was first colonized on, in the wake of the, uh, the transit of Venus observations made by Captain Cook. Uh, but, but I think also uh, Australians have been uh, traditionally very proud of the science that's done in Australia. And Australia's got a great scientific heritage and astronomy in particular has, uh, has always been uh, very high uh, among scientific, uh, uh, scientific activities. Here Uh, and also Australians are very proud of their national facilities. Things like the Anglo-Australian Telescope, the, uh, the Australian Astronomical Observatory, where I work, it's the biggest optical telescope in australia and uh, unlikely as it might seem it's something of a national icon as is the park fish uh, the, the most famous radio telescope in australia so these are i think are all things that uh, that uh, conspire to heighten interest and i think over the last few years that interest has grown really as uh, australians have seen such wonderful changes in our understanding of the universe
0: mm. do, but, And do you think um as i guess as that Understanding in the, And maybe, you know, just the, the fact that it be, it's becoming easier and easier to communicate those things via technology. Um, we can instantly see pictures, as you talked about in the book, um, you know, straight away from Hubble as soon as they come in. Um, so we, we're really right on the edge of things that are happening, which is very exciting, too. Um, but do you think along with that, um, you, you do also find that you are attracting fringe? <laughs> Fringe dwellers if you like. Oh um yes, people like Antonio. people
1: like Messenger Nine from Pluto. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um it's funny actually, uh it, it's very seldom that uh for example at one of my talks uh uh well attended, I'm delighted to say, but it's very seldom that we get that uh, that that fringe element. And I suspect that's because um, the people who perhaps hear about my talks are fairly mainstream Australians who are genuinely interested in finding out about the universe and finding out about Australia's contribution to our understanding of it. So it's only once in a while that somebody like Messenger 9 turns up. He was great though. He was such good value. Uh, and I'm delighted uh, that um, it was because it was a, a talk that I was giving in Germany. And of course uh, with typical German precision I was presented with a CD of my talk at the end which included the questions which I know what Messenger 9 had to say about the universe it got a record of it and on, on a CD
0: and therefore a chapter as well
1: The whole chapter in the book that's right
0: yeah, of course Pluto, Pluto being fairly hot at the moment too yeah, yeah. that's right not, not literally So, um, ha, have you always enjoyed translating the complex you know, often difficult from a mathematical perspective elements of science into clear simple explanations
1: um, it's something that's um, I've actually partly felt um, was a responsibility. I've been uh, throughout my life uh, employed essentially by the public sector because astronomy is the kind of suit that uh, that governments engage in it it, it is becoming uh, almost a commercial operation now there are are certainly some telescopes which operate under a commercial basis but generally speaking the the point uh, that I would make is that having been uh, paid from the public purse to to do uh, research and uh, to, to, you know, inquire about uh, the nature of the universe, some of the most exciting questions that we can ask about where we came from and how the universe got to be like it is. Having, having been supported in that way, I've always felt uh, that it's a, a incumbent upon us as astronomers actually to feed that information back to, to the, the public at large in such a way that they're inspired and excited by it. Um, and I guess what I've tried to do over the years is put it in terms that I can understand, uh, to try and reduce some of the mathematics to to ideas that you can communicate in a, 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 a perhaps a more yeah, straightforward way, and uh, get that some of that excitement over to as many people <laughs> as who will stop and listen to me. So it's um, yeah, it's been something I've, I've always felt has been a very important thing.
0: Mm. Uh, do you sometimes struggle with the uh, maybe the desire to do astronomy and um, and the, the need to communicate it? Do, do those, even from a scheduling point of view, do those two things sometimes conflict? Yes,
1: they do. Um, certainly they do. And uh, I guess I've missed uh, lots of uh, TV opportunities by being up in Coonabarabran at the telescope doing the work that, um, that I would otherwise be talking about. Um, but uh, I have to say, uh, and uh, Maggie, this must not go beyond these four walls. Uh, I have to say that, um, you know, I work in a in an environment with some of the brightest minds, uh, well, in the country certainly, who uh, who are very very able and competent researchers. And uh, I do, I I do still do research, but I'm now part of a very big team. Uh, In the days when I was doing my own research, though, I never felt that I had that spark of genius that was needed to see to get the insights into to what's really going on. And uh, so I've always seen my role as being more fundamentally one that is about interpreting what those results are all about and perhaps keeping uh, a watching brief on everything that's going on in astronomy and space science. So in in that regard you might describe me as a jack of all trades and master of none but it does give me a unique perspective because I, I know what my colleagues are doing and I can perhaps relate uh, quite disparate bits of research to one another which sometimes is a productive way to do it if you put people in touch with one another who are working on uh, on problems that uh, uh, have a similar uh, ultimate goal then it's a productive thing to do
0: Yes, I mean certainly in the book um, you don't limit yourself solely to astronomy there's quantum theory, there's history, <laughs> so even some sociology Um <laughs> Do you you think, though, that that perhaps there is a need, certainly from a a physics point of view, for us to connect some of these dots as we attempt to go into new places in science?
1: Yeah, I I think that is um, going to become more and more important as we move forward. It's already, you know, we're already seeing these uh, linkages um, between um, what, what might have previously been seen as quite disconnected Uh, parts of science, Uh, what's happened in in our world, in the astronomy world over the last decade or so, is that we've seen a a whole new branch uh, of astronomy called astrobiology, which is a, a sort of um, it's almost an umbrella term that links together astronomy, uh, planetary science, geology, meteorology, meteorology, climate science, and biology uh, as well, uh, so that the life sciences are suddenly becoming uh, part of the, the the mandate of astronomers to study. And that's all about the search for life beyond the Earth, the, the, the quest to know whether Uh, the Earth is unique in having living organisms on it or whether there are other places which have life too. So uh, there's many cross-disciplinary connections being made there. But in the future, I think that will uh, grow uh, because I think we'll start seeing uh, such... Fields, uh, really esoteric fields, is quantum biology, which is something that has really only just kicked off. The idea that quantum processes, and by that I mean the, 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 the quantum processes that take place in physics, which are very, very weird, uh, that they are also taking place in biological organisms. We know it's true in, for example, birds that uh, use quantum processes in their uh, migratory navigation, but it may be that we're actually using them ourselves in our own brains as we think every day and I think this has a marvellous future so uh, I think all these cross disciplinary things are, are becoming much more important
0: Mm. Yes, I, I often wonder whether astrobiology itself is, a, you know, quite an optimistic topic to be taking on.
1: It, it is, in the sense that, uh, you know, what 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 it's. Um, I suppose that you, looking at it from the outside, you might say, well, astrobiology is all, all about looking at the biology of, of uh, extraterrestrial species, and in a sense, that's true. And in that regard, it means that you know the sky's the the limit. You can make up ideas as fast as you can generate them. But the reality is that what it does do is focuses uh, Signs on ourselves, in the sense of how we came to be here, and how um, our forebears uh, uh, really uh, uh, how life kicked off in, in, in a sense in the very early uh, earth, so we think life evolved actually as far back as three billion or so years ago the earth 's only four and a half billion years old, so we think life is very, very old here on earth, and the question is if you 've got the right conditions for life to to form, will it always form that 's the, the big unknown, but the more we learn about life and living organisms from an astrobiological perspective the more we're likely to learn about ourselves and our own origins
0: Mm. and our world too I suppose because it it must touch on the notion of extremophiles and how life survives in these strange places
1: exactly so, Uh, we find living organisms in the most uh, unexpected places on earth and that's why people are encouraged to look at uh, places like Mars to, to, to find whether there could be life there too
0: Mm. So, tell me how the book itself came about.
1: Um, it's uh, it's one of these things that happened almost by accident because um, I've uh, this is the third book I've written with Alan and Unwin, the, the publishers, and uh, uh, the, the suggestion was made that I should look at a book that would um, would talk about how we know what we know about the universe, and that's really the underlying theme of the book. It's it's about the the ways that we've discovered uh, um, the information about our environment in space that we now know and so it looks quite a lot at the history of astronomy but also looks very much at uh, at modern day astronomy and what's happening in in the 21st century so uh, yes it's about how we know what we know about the universe but there's an underlying theme which you've clearly picked up on and that is that over the last uh, five or six years I've had a lot of traveling around with groups of interested Australians, to show them uh, some of the places where science comes from, some of the places in the world where uh, science uh, is moving forward and some of the historical sites where um, the great discoveries were made, going back to to things that happened in ancient Peru and then to the, the European Renaissance and the, and the, the, the a, uh, Age of Enlightenment when people were really first starting to discover uh, the mechanisms of the universe. Some, some of those discoveries were, were made in places which are extraordinarily beautiful, um, such such as the, uh, the island of Vane, a tiny island between Denmark and Sweden in the Eurisund that separates the two modern-day states. That's a place where a great Danish nobleman called Tycho Brahe did his work, and he's uh, uh, such an extraordinary character in the history of astronomy, and the place he worked is, is a, just a delightful place. It's wonderful to take people there and explain what his contribution was to, to science. So that's the kind of thing that we've been doing.
0: Mm. And do you come up with your own destinations and itineraries? Do you think about uh, you know, what you want to see or what you want, how uh, you want to? Pretty well.
1: <laughs> pretty well. But um, I, I should um, come clean and explain that my partner is somebody who's got a lifelong background in travel and uh, she also has some pretty good ideas for destinations and by putting these ideas together uh, I think we work out some rather remarkable places to go Uh, it's not just about the history of course we also uh, take people to see eclipses uh, and things of that sort and uh, uh, several times now we've ventured up to the far northern arctic to look at the aurora borealis one of the most wonderful sights that the, uh, the sky has to offer but you need to be near the poles to see it
0: Hmm. Although I should say that it is possible to see at least a, a pale version of that in a video on your website.
1: <laughs> yes, that's right.
0: <laughs> For somebody who might want to do it from their chair, yeah. but uh, it's not quite the same, of course. Do you have a wish list of places you'd like to go?
1: Uh, I do, <laughs> and um, <laughs> most of them are on our itineraries over the next few years. So that's uh, that's, a, that's a great thing. Um, we've got. Um, w- we've also made links with. Um, with the geophysics community because of course the earth is a planet and it can tell us a lot about planets in general Uh, and the earth is a pretty active planet it's got plate tectonics going on and that means that in places like iceland where two uh, crustal plates are actually separating we've got uh, planetary science in the raw and we have a colleague uh, a man named Nick, nick petford who is the Vice-Chancellor of Northampton University in the UK, but he's also a volcanologist, and we've gone a couple of times to Iceland with him to, to look at the, the volcanic uh, uh, effects and the, the, the generally the, the way the Earth is being shaped in one of the hot spots on, on, the, uh, on its crust. And that is such an informative thing to do. It's uh, it's a it's a great place to go. Uh, so we've got other similar targets as well uh, on our wish list. Places like that to go to, and one of them is Hawaii, one of the most active volcanic parts of the world. We shall be there uh, in 2015.
0: It sounds wow. amazing. <laughs> <Good stuff.
1: laughs> the,
0: the book the book itself jumps around between the world of astronomy and science. It's almost like a virtual astronomy tour itself.
1: Thank you. That's uh, exactly what I hoped it would be, and I'm I'm glad that uh, you've you've taken away that, uh, that impression of it. Thank you very much.
0: That's all right. So how did you decide on the structure? How did you decide, you know, w- which pieces would go where? Yes.
1: So broadly, it's, it's historical in in, uh, in in its layout, although there are, um, you know, the second chapters write uh, right up to date stuff about Pluto. So that, in a sense, doesn't fit. But I I, I, I wanted to give people, uh, in some ways, a, a flavor of what uh, the world of science and astronomy are like, because it's, bursting with new ideas and with, with this great heritage of a history of, of uh, science, which has often led up blind alleys and has often had people of really quite extraordinary character. Some total nutcases have been involved in the world of science. And I wanted, so I wanted to paint a picture that would perhaps sparkle a little bit like the world of science does. And uh, that's perhaps why it darts around here and there. But the general, uh, if you kind of flick through it, the general trend is, is from the past to the present. and perhaps the future as well because the book ends with some ideas about uh, our understanding of space and time which are really at the moment very speculative but uh, might be uh, the, the stuff of modern astronomy and physics in 20 or 30 years time.
0: Mm. Yes, uh, I, I find that it's quite, um, quite powerful in particular on you know, the potential future and uh, in what directions things might go in. Um, even, even to a certain extent how it brings in the spiritual world
1: (laughs) well that's right and this goes back to what we were saying a few minutes ago about the cross-fertilization because um Mm
0: -hmm.
1: there is much more i think to um to the, the the reality that we perceive around us there's a lot more to it than we can see uh physicists are looking for evidence of what we call new physics which is Uh, perhaps particles of, uh, subatomic particles of an unusual kind, that's one avenue, but another avenue is the possibility of hidden dimensions. So rather than the three dimensions of space and one of time that we can see, there might well be, um, hidden dimensions, in fact the string theorists want there to be at least 10 <laughs> dimensions and some string theories have 26, all rolled up in a way that we can't see them. Uh, that's uh, highly speculative physics at the moment, but it is the stuff of reality in coming, uh, in coming generations of physicists. So uh, that um, opens up the possibility. Uh, uh, once again, when you, when you involve humans in this, which we recognize are incredibly complex creatures as I said in the book, the human brain is the most complex entity known and that includes most of the universe so it's, uh, it, it, it's something that I think there is a certain perhaps a symbiosis between uh, the way humans see the, uh, the, the, um, the, the, the world of reality and the way physics sees it and I think these two uh, the, the, there, are, there are perhaps uh, trends in this uh, which I think will lead to quite new discoveries over the next perhaps 20 years that will perhaps explain some of the, you know, the way our forebears could find their way around in in ways that we don't currently understand, things of that sort, Um, which may, as you say, you might almost label them spiritual things, that connection with country, for example, which um, our Aboriginal uh, brethren here in in Australia have. Uh, That's the kind of thing that I think will be the stuff of science down the track, and I think we'll learn some extraordinary things about the human species that we didn't know before.
0: Mm. Which brings, of course, psychology into it yes, and psychiatry exactly into it as well. all
1: of those things too. That's right. Yes.
0: Yeah. So another discipline that, that you know makes some appearance uh, in your book, but m- even more of an appearance in your life is this notion of music. Yes. Um, do you see a strong relationship between music and science.
1: Yeah, and I wish you could work out what it is. I mean, <laughs> there is um, look, there are symmetries in music uh, that. Have their parallels very much in science? It was uh, Johannes Kepler back at, at the beginning of the 17th century, who was uh, he wrote um, a, a book basically. Uh, uh, the, the, the music of the spheres is how it's uh, usually translated: Harmonia Mundi, uh, Harmony of the World. It's it's about um, how the, perhaps the orbits of the planets might relate to to musical sounds, and uh, so th- th- that's where science and music, I guess. Um, almost started coming together and they've really had this intimate connection ever since Music is very, very like mathematics, in fact, it's almost a mathematical language. Both mathematics and music use uh, kind of hieroglyphs that nobody else can understand and uh, wind up by uh, evolving uh, theories and ideas and, uh, you know, you might uh, on the one hand see a theory of relativity that will be mathematics, but the equivalent might be a symphony that evolves some ideas of music and uh, shows new insights on them at the end of, of the work. So I think there are, there are intimate connections. I think we might see even more connections, although, as I said, I've no idea what they are. Uh, but music's certainly been something that has been very much a background to my life uh, for, for my whole life and, and really has uh, perhaps illuminated the science rather than dulled it down. So it's, uh, it's th- thrown, thrown things into relief rather than the, the other way around.
0: Mm. And I suppose many of the major physicists have had that musical connection too. I know Einstein and uh, a number of others have also been musicians to a certain yes, extent. Yes, very
1: much so. That's right. Yes. Uh, Einstein was actually quite a quite a. Uh, A good violinist. He, in fact, he gave concerts Uh, when he became famous as a physicist. He, he occasionally gave concerts, and apparently uh, there was once a review written of one of his concerts by somebody who was unaware of his day job, and he said, "Well, Einstein was pretty good, but there are other violinists who are at least as good as he is in the world." So one of the critics wasn't that impressed. But you're quite right that it seems to be maybe the way the brains are wired uh, leads to. Uh, uh, an affinity with both music and mathematics
0: mm. Yes, I hadn't really thought about that with that mathematical link but I suppose pure mathematics is different but when you're actually taking math into a realm where they become a full-scale theory then there is that link between I guess math becoming a full-scale symphony Yes,
1: that's right, Yeah, very much so
0: Mm. So uh, tell me about your intergalactic blues. <laughs> oh
1: well, um, my my first love, as you might guess, is classical music. But but I have always been a great uh, admirer of, uh, <laughs> of more more popular genres, and p- in particular. Um, you have to, have to realize I'm a very old person, because back in the 1960s, when uh, when uh, the, the, the folk world was starting to take uh, the, the, the musical world by storm, I was for a while a professional musician, uh, because it was the only way I could find to support myself through my master's degree. Uh, in, in fact, I immediately became an unemployed musician, which is the sort of state that most musicians are in. Uh, but I did quite a lot of teaching. So I taught guitar. I kind of taught myself to be a half-decent guitarist. And I used to sing in folk pubs. I actually um, had uh, a lot of friends and colleagues who later went on to become quite famous names in the world of music. Uh, Jerry Rafferty is probably the most famous. He used to be half of a group called the Humblebums. Uh, he later went on to produce a hit, uh, a, a hit song called um, Baker Street. It's very very well known in the 1980s. The other half of the Humble Bums, by the way, was a musician who was nowhere near as accomplished as Jerry, and his name was Billy Connolly. I'm not sure what happened to him, but uh, he found other, ve- other ventures uh, to, to pursue. But yes, it was quite a, quite a time to be around in the, in the northern England and Scotland to to, to make a living... Uh, performing folk music
0: on the stage for all these people who names. I didn't know the connection between Jerry Hafferty and Billy Connolly or in you, but uh, now we do. This is a scoop. There you
1: go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <That's
0: right. laughs> Look, we're almost out of time, um, but just tell me, what, what's next for you, Fred? Is there a new project on the horizon?
1: Um, th- there is. In, in, in terms of astronomy, um, I'm very involved with uh, a, a an upcoming project for one of our telescopes we've actually just finished in fact uh, this weekend we had the the celebration to to uh, mark the completion of a project called RAVE uh, R A V E which is the radial velocity experiment uh, which has used one of our telescopes to measure the speeds and physical details of about half a million stars which is an achievement that we're proud of, uh, but that telescope has, uh, we believe, uh, a new future with another survey down the track and so it's got to go through a period of metamorph- uh, metamorphosis which I'm very excited about because I want to play a part in that. So that's, that's the, the, the the big project in the day job, but um, yes, the, the other projects are more, more tours to more or less exotic places I see um, uh, the the growth of the off-planet economy as something that's quite exciting too, that means things like space tourism and, and space mining uh, all of which are currently just being bandied around with not much substance to them, although space tourism seems set to, to get started And I'd like to be involved with some of those, although this is uh, almost certainly uh, will be from the sidelines and writing about it. But I think these are very exciting ideas. And I think, you know, the way technology is going, we've got so much um, good stuff ahead uh, that I'm sorry I'm at at the end of my career rather than the beginning. (laughs) Because I think think science is really in a marvelous position at the moment to, to make, as I said, big new discoveries.
0: Wonderful. So uh, we'll have to look out for, um, you know, your first solar system tour.
1: That could be the next thing, the next big thing. Uh, the the, the Fred, right. Fred Watson tour of Mars. There, there you go. <laughs> Remember where that's you that's heard your, it first.
0: <laughs> that's, uh, Richard Branson, if you're listening, yes. um, we're, we're ready to go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wonderful. Look, that's all we have time for. But uh, listeners who want to find more about your books tours, um, or even to watch that fantastic Aurora video, um, Take It On Your Fire in the Sky tour, can go to www.fredwatson.com.au So, thank you very much for joining us today. It's
1: been a great pleasure, Maggie, and thank you very much for your time.
0: And listeners, don't forget to join us next month when we talk to Dr. Bob Rich, who will be joining us to speak about his novel, Ascending Spiral. Bye for now.